Well, good morning again, everybody. Take a seat, get comfortable. Again, we're glad that you're here. We're going to continue our study this morning in 1 Samuel. We're, we've been studying it for several weeks now, 26 weeks to be in fact. We're in our 27th week of 1 Samuel. hope you're not getting tired of it. I'm learning a lot through it, so I hope you are as well. And I hope you're continuing to, to read through it on your own, uh, even into 2 Samuel. So um, let me go ahead and dismiss the kids to Children's Church there, uh, so they can go also learn about Jesus during this, this time that we are spending together. It's a great time. Also, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of those in the back near, near the, the sound booth. We're going to be on page 314 if you're using that Bible. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 27. We're going to look through the entire chapter, and we're also going to go through the first two verses of chapter 28 this morning. So, in a nutshell, what we've been, what we've been looking through over the past several weeks, like I said, is that we've been seeing Israel's transition from a theocracy to a monarchy where God's still in control, he's still ruling over his people, but he's now raising up an anointed king to be that representative for him on earth that will continue to direct people to, to, uh, to God in his rule, ultimately under, under the authority of God in his, in his scriptures. But like, like all scripture, as we're looking at this account and anything else that we look through scripture, it's not, we're not simply encountering a historical account of, of what's going on. It's, it's much more than that. We're looking to God's inspired word and his inerrant, his authoritative word, and we're seeing much more than just what simply happened, right? We're, we're looking at God and how he is sovereign over all things and how he is in control and empowering over all that is happening. He's accomplishing his plans, we're seeing. He's, he's fulfilling his promises. He's, by his very power and providence, he's, he's, he's um, bringing all things to his holy purposes. It's a lot of peas. Sorry for that. I didn't do that intentionally. It just happened to be that way. But that's, in a nutshell, what's going on. And what we've been reading, and I hope you're continuing to read, like I said, is that we're finding that God is unmistakably present among His people. That He hasn't left them. He's, he's everywhere in this unfolding story. We saw, if you look, look back all the way to the beginning of this book, we're seeing how He raised up Samuel just at the right time. And, he, and his, his birth was a miraculous one. He was born um, to Hannah, who was otherwise a barren woman. And we see him coming to age briefly, the, the short account that we have, under the mentorship of a priest named Eli. And then we see him called at a very young age, called audibly, in fact, to serve as judge and priest over God's people, Israel. And then under his leadership, we see that the first king of Israel is anointed. Saul looks like uh, he, he meets all the criteria. Um, Israel is demanding, remember, demands a king, and God gives gives them what they're looking for, the kind of king that they want. And at first, he looks like a strong, valiant leader. He even looks like a godly leader. He's bringing uh, the people and their forces against Israel's enemies. And alongside Samuel, we actually see that the kingdom of Israel is renewed at Gilgal back in chapter 11. But then we see, as we look from chapter to chapter, that Saul's true colors are beginning to shine through. Right? We see him disobey God when he's told to annihilate the, the Amalekites. He was serving as God's judge to judge those people, and he disobeys God's commands. And not only that, but he, he, he refuses to repent of that sin. And so, so God instead calls another man, a man by the name of David, a man after his own heart, to now be the new king of Israel. And this chosen prince of Israel is markedly different than, than Saul. Not because he's a better person in and of himself, but what we see early on is that the Lord was with him. And this was pretty apparent among 
all of Israel, including Saul himself, who, who vocalized that. And ever since that he was anointed, we saw that Saul had his eyes on David. Initially, he just wished him harm, that maybe he would go to battle and maybe fall. But that, now we see that he's got a full-fledged mission to destroy David. And that's where we're at. But then what we see is that God has, over and over again, he's protected his anointed one. Even though the odds from the, from the human perspective look like they're stacked against David, he's got God on his side. Right? And God has been, on multiple occasions, has protected David. In fact, we saw twice Saul was brought, really delivered into David's hands. He's, and last week we saw that the second time that had happened. That Saul was left in this compromising position. But David, for the second time, spared Saul's life. And last week we looked at, it was their, actually it was their final encounter. They'll, they'll never speak together uh, again. Saul, we're going to see, is going to, is just, just a shortly is going to die. But David took this opportunity while he was with King Saul for this last chance for him to give this lesson to the king. He, remember, he returned Saul's spear to him. He gives him back the jug of water that he had left. And he says this to Saul. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. So in that, that brief encounter, that, that statement that we just looked at, David looks like he's learned a lot while he's been in the desert, while he's been in the wilderness. He's learned that he's had to depend upon God. He's, he's got to learn to depend on God as his shield, as his protector. He's learned how to be restrained, how to restrain his wrath, how to restrain himself from sinning, and, and, uh, and to show instead mercy and to show grace. He's learned that God has not forsaken him and that he is, his promise is still there, that, and God will fulfill his promise to make him the king of Israel. But then we get to chapter 27. Things are a little bit different. David is still a leading figure here in this chapter, in this, this story, but there's also another character that seems to be missing. There's, there's a major character that, that looks to be absent. God is not at all mentioned once in this entire chapter. And I think the narrator wants us to, to experience a deafening silence and, and, to, and to see something that's quite telling. That David is, in this time of his life, is at a very low, he's at a very low point. And what he'll end up doing here is he'll depend on his own cleverness, his own understanding, his own self-dependence, rather than trusting in God. And we see that's going to lead him to a very serious situation, a very serious dilemma. His moral compass seems to be shattered at this point, and he's leaning on his own wisdom and understanding rather than what Proverbs 3 says, right? To trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Well, he's going to be doing that. He's leaning on his own understanding. And he's actually going to fall headlong now into an act of national treachery. But the good news is that the Lord has not, has not forsaken him. He's not given up on David. Although David has forgotten God's promises, God has not forgotten his promises. And although God, even though Saul, I should say, David has, has forsaken God's word, God has not forsaken his word. 
and that we should also remember that God has not been surprised at all by what's going to be happening here with David's decision making. God's not forsaken David. He's not forsaken his people Israel. And that's something that we all can, re- can be reminded of and take comfort in this morning as we look at our text. So let's look at our text this morning. Again, chapter 27 of 1 Samuel. We're going to look at the entire chapter and then the first two verses of chapter 28. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and his six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither woman or man alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negab of Judah, or against the Negab of the Jeramalites, or against the Negab of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor, nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me to the, into the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. That's the word of the Lord. So this um, story is actually divided up in, into four paragraphs, which actually makes for uh, an easy four-part four part outline. We're going to look at David's plan in verses 1 through 4. Then we're going to look at David's place of refuge. Then we'll look at David's plundering. And then finally, we'll look at David's predicament, where it all leads to. So let's first look at his plan in verses 1 through 4. So we see the text here opening up, and we're given an insight into what David's thinking. He's actually talking to himself. And it's pretty scary, right, to think that there's someone who could know your thoughts, who can let you know what you're thinking. Can you imagine if there was some way that your thoughts, your feelings, maybe your likes, your dislikes, could be posted in a place where anybody could read it any time? I mean, think about it. That'd be kind of crazy, right? Some of you probably get that in a little bit. Facebook, Twitter, okay, okay, okay. So anyways, David is now working out in his mind. He's coming up with some kind of solution to the Saul problem that he has. He's looking for a way that he can find some long-term um, safety from, from Saul's constant threats. 
And he's come to the conclusion that it's really only a matter of time before it takes me out, before Saul will find me, hunt me down, and take me out. In fact, we see in David's mind here, he's using the same word that he used back in chapter 26, the word perish, which is Hebrew for being swept away. He's using this now um, in his own context. So what's very, what's very telling is that he had used it for once before about Saul, that somehow in, some time, in God's timing, in his way, he would take Saul out. He would be swept away. He would perish. And now he's afraid that's going to be happening to him. Which begs the question, where... What, didn't we just learn, David, that God is going to be your protector? He's going to be the one that, you, that delivers you? He's already saved you from Saul's murderous plots multiple times, and he's cared for you since you were anointed. I mean, if you look all the way back, he's, he's cared for David from the very time that he was anointed. He first rose up a spiritual mentor for him in Samuel, and that was enough. God brought him Jonathan, Saul's very son, the king's son, to be his to be his his friend, and remember, if you look back, we we see that Jonathan actually gives up his vestments, his royal vestments, his robe, his his uh, uh, his st- uh, everything that is royal, and he is doing this as a way of symbolizing that David is the next king of Israel, and he is giving his allegiance to David as the as the next king of Israel. He will also help David flee from, from Saul, his father, and actually he will come to him in, 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 at the time when he needed a friend most, and he'll remind him of God's promises. We see that in chapter 23. And then if we look two weeks ago, we even saw that David had Abigail, that, that God had brought Abigail to him to, in order to help restrain him from his sin, from, from the sin of blood guilt. And he also reminded David that God had made him to be the next prince over Israel in chapter 25. And last week, then, we now we see even Saul himself is saying that you are going to be doing great things for the Lord. So the question is, where, where, does, where is this coming from? What, what's changed David's mind all of a sudden? Where is this newfound pessimism really coming from? Well, I think if we look at the text, there's a few things that we can find that are hinted here. Um, one thing is, just consider the very fact that the burden that David's under. I mean, consider just the amount of stress that he's that he's under at this point in his life. I mean, he's being hunted by a psychopathic killer. Not only just a psychopath, but a king that's a psychopath who has entire nation's resources, right, at his disposal to come after one man. He's been on the run for months, months, maybe even years at this point. We don't know exactly how long it's been. And so he has to constantly be looking over his shoulder, being vigilant at all, at all points. He's, he's, he's probably not sleeping very well. Now he's caring for two wives among 600 men as well and, their, and all of their families. He's got livestock to worry about and their food and the, all the baggage that goes with them from place to place as they're fleeing from Saul. So obviously he's, a lot of, he's under a lot of stress. Would we, wouldn't you agree? But I think... It's, it's gone further than that. I mean, I think that he's actually fallen at this point into, into despair. If you look at verse 1, he talks about Saul being in despair. But I think he's really pointing out that he himself is experiencing some despair of his own. It could be that David's actually hoping that by escaping from Saul, Saul will some, at some point face and get maybe a little, a, get a little taste of the stress, the anxiety, despair that he's been under for a little while. We don't know that for sure, but that that seems to be logical. I mean, that's probably what I would be thinking. 
But I think what's most telling here is that we're given an insight as to how David is going to handle those fears and anxieties in, in his present despair. We see that he's actually looking, rather than looking up to God, he's looking inwardly. He's isolating himself from other people. He's not, he's not talking to anybody else. We don't see him reaching out to the, to the priest who had previously asked for, who would bring him the ephod that had, uh, that had the urim and thummim in it where he could find the, the, the revealed will of God. He's not, he's not praying to God. We don't see him crying out to God in this, in this passage at all. Instead, he's, he's taking upon himself to make this really important life decision, not just for his own life at this point, but for all those under his care, and he's doing it all on the basis of his own fears, his own anxieties, his own human reasoning. He's relying on his own understanding, and, and what he's doing is, is now falling into doubts. He's doubting God's promises. He's, his faith in God seems to be drying up at this point. And if we're honest, we can all sympathize with David, right? I mean, we don't have a murderous king after us, and I get that, but we all deal with Despair, we all deal with anxiety, we all deal with fears, frustrations, pain. Sometimes it's a consequence of, of our own sin, from, from the habits that, that we have, by, by our lifestyle, by the way that we behave. Sometimes it's a result just because of the fact that we live in, in a world that's, that's broken by sin. And sometimes it actually comes out of doing good things. After, after having shown efforts to love others, that love or that, that, sh- that, sh- that, that love that we show other people is returned with animosity or hatred. And that can then lead us into despair or depression. I think the point is that we can all sympathize because we've, we're all human. That if you're not suffering, you're not human. It's, just, it's not about whether or not we suffer. It's about how we're going to cope with suffering. Are we going to use methods of distraction? That's one way that we do it. That's, that's one method. That's one that I, that's probably, if I'm honest, that's one of the ones that I use. Whether it's through entertainment, entertaining ourselves, whether it's through work or workaholism, maybe it's through just acquiring more, more, more stuff. We try to escape, maybe through substance abuse, maybe through drugs, alcohol. Could be a list of other things. Could be that we just... Out, you know, flat out just deny the fact that we're in the situation that we're in. And that can also look like Pollyanna-like optimism, too. Don't get me wrong. That's, that's one way that we can show that we're in denial. Or maybe it's just that we're trying to muster up enough strength in ourselves, that we're trying to use our own ingenuity, that we're trying to come up with our own clever plan for how we can move forward. I think the, the Apostle Paul, if we look back at what he had gone through, and he was under a great strain. He had been shipwrecked. He had gone through multiple beatings. He had been imprisoned on several occasions. He had been abandoned by his friends. And the list can go on and on and on. It was, all this was for the sake of the gospel. But then he wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, after going through all that turbulence in his life. He says to the Corinthians, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. So we see there Paul having gone through that. And, and, and now David, for that matter, they are people just like we are. I mean... 
Maybe that astonishes you. It shouldn't astonish you. It shouldn't surprise you that they're people just like we are. They were often stressed and burdened, even to the point where it was beyond their ability to handle it. And what David should have been doing is what we had just read, as we just heard Paul himself say, which is, God has delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us again. So the question I have this morning is, do you have that kind of confidence? Right? Do you have confidence, not in yourself, but do you have confidence in the person and the work of Jesus Christ? He is the perfect and sinless Son of God who experienced the burden of our sin, not, even, not only just our sin, but the sins of the whole world, it says. Not only our sin, but the shame that comes from our sin and the judgment that, that comes due to us because of our sin. And yet, as a result, if we just take refuge under His atoning work on the cross, then we become the beneficiaries of His eternal love. We get to experience the, guaranteed, the guarantee of His promises, that He will accomplish His promises. So what we're seeing here in David's life is at this point he has failed the test. He's substituted his faithfulness in God, his trust in God as, as his protector, as a deliverer, and he's, instead he's traded in for cleverness and for pragmatism. And, and really, what looks like happened was that it looked like it worked. At least initially, chapter, uh, in, in, uh, in, in verse 4 it says, And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath, and he no longer sought him. So, what's, what's interesting here is that the success that he finds in, in using his own cleverness is deceiving, because it doesn't signal God's blessing in his life. The same is true of us. We might look to other pseudo-saviors and to rescue us out of things, and it might give us some relief just for a short while, but ultimately it's, it's, it's going to come back to haunt us, and there's, there's, a, there's a cost for it. What, what's the cost that David is, uh, is paying here? And that's what we're going to find out as we look, as we look a little further. Now let's look at, at, at uh, point number two as we look where David's taking his place of refuge in verses five through seven. Saul, uh, David has already determined that he's going to escape from Saul on his own rather than to be delivered from Saul by God. And he decides that the, the best place for his refuge is where? It's with the enemy. Right, that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, I've heard the term, I don't know where I've heard this before, this phrase before, but keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Somewhere I've heard that, but it seems kind of ridiculous when you're looking at it in David's context, right? If you recall, this is also David's not first time in Gath. And if you look back at chapter 21, he's done this before, and it didn't go so well for him last time. So we're actually kind of wondering, hmm, why does he think it's going to be better for him this time? He tried to go undercover last time. He went to, to, to Achish, the, the king of Gath, back then as well. And he went under, uh, under pretenses that he was not who he was. And what happens is that the servants of, of Achish notice exactly who David is. And they see right through him and say, oh, this is David, the one that they said that Saul has killed his, his thousands and David his ten thousands. And then what happens is David gets terrified because he finds that they, they can see through his disguise and he does, and he does the, the first thing that comes to his mind, the only thing he can think of to do, which is pretend like he's insane. So he pretends like he's a madman. And it seems like it works. He's quite convincing because Achish actually th- ends up throwing him out of his house. And David then goes back into the wilderness. But this time, looks things are a little bit different. He's not trying to hide his identity. He, he's being very upfront about who he is. And I think 
what's, what's happening here too is I think Achish knows that, that there's Saul is after David. I, I think it's probably quite amusing to think that, that your enemy is having some turbulence within their own ranks. And I think that they may even use it to their advantage at one point. If you look back at chapter 23, for instance, we see the, the Ziphites had gone, to, had gone to Saul and said that he, David is in this location. He's in the wilderness of Maon, so go and, go and take him out. So Saul then goes and he pursues David. He goes out into the wilderness there. And if you remember, there's, there's this, uh, this mountain range that's out there. And David's on one side of the mountain. And then we see Saul coming to the other side of the mountain. And he's starting to close in on him. He's, he's making the, the round around the mountain here. And just as he's about to close in on David, he stopped. Because what happens is a messenger comes in and says, We've got, you've got to leave and abandon your pursuit of David. And you've got to come back because the Philistines are now... Taking, uh, taking their forces up against Israel. And so, for that short period of time, for that moment, Saul leaves and he goes back and to fight against the Philistines. So, do you think maybe the Philistines might have known this was going on and they're going after Israel when they're at their most vulnerable? You know, maybe, maybe not. We, don't, we can only speculate. But what we do know is that God had, at that point, and has proven over and over again that He's providentially protected His anointed one. Now, getting back to the text this morning, though, David approaches King Achish and actually refers to himself, he humbles himself, refers to himself as Achish's servant. So the anointed prince of Israel is humbling himself before a foreign king. And not just any foreign king, but against the arch enemy of Israel. And what we see him doing is he is hiring himself as a, as a sort of mercenary that will be under the auspices of the Philistine army. And what he does here as well is he does something that's pretty smart. He, he asks for some country that's a little bit outside of the, the, uh, the royal area of Gath um, so he can be a little bit further away from, from, um, from, from Achish here. That looks like a smart move because, for one... It helps out both parties. It's a, it's a benefit for the king Achish because now he doesn't have to, to use the city's resources to, uh, to front some, some money to help provide a place for lodging all these men and David himself. And also, it gives David this, this, this space so he's away from the oversight of the king so he can kind of live on his own. And he looks like he's a pretty good negotiator here because it seems like it works out. He certainly seems to find favor in Achish's eyes here, as it says. So he's, so he's given Ziklag, which is about 25, 30 miles south of Gath. And um, he stays there for about a year and four months, it says. And what we see happening here is he's going to actually try to play Achish. He is, he's going to try to deceive him. But we've got to take a step back again and just ask the question, like, what's going on in his mind? What, what could... Why could David be really doing this? Why was he seeking refuge from Israel, in Israel's enemy, the Philistines here? Well, I think we, can, we get a little bit of an understanding if we look back, if you turn the page just back one chapter, in chapter 26, in verses 19 through 20, it should shed some light on this a little bit. We'll see him some, David say something very interesting to Saul. He says this, Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. Again, he, now, he's, now we're hearing him say, just a second ago, he's calling himself servant to Achish. Now he's, here he's calling himself servant to the king, Saul. So, interesting. 
If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. So if the Lord's the one that's behind you coming after me and is looking to judge me for my sin, then let me, let me sacrifice an offering and find favor in his eyes. But, he says, if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. So part of David's indictment here against Saul is that we see that he's, he's saying that Saul is effectively driving him out of the nation of Israel. That he's pushing him out of the borders of the community, the people of God. And by doing that, he's pushing David out of the fringes of Israel into pagan territory where they serve other gods. Now, we, as Pastor Lou mentioned last week, he did, it's not as though David believed that somehow that that um, as the pagans believed that they had territorial gods, that somehow their god, that the god of Israel, was confined to a certain territory and that he, he didn't have any power outside that territory. But he's referring to this, this special presence of God in and among his people Israel there. And Saul is pushing him outside of that presence of, his, of the people of Israel and the very presence of God, that special presence of God. And at this point, when he's talking to, to Saul, he's determined that he's not going to leave. He says in verse 20, Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. So he's determined that he's not going to leave the area. But now we see him in Ziklag. He's now in Philistia here, in the Philistines' territory. And Ziklag is looking quite comfortable to him. Being in this enemy territory isn't so bad if it means that I get some respite, if I get a little bit of R&R here. But what's troubling, what's really happening under, under the scenes here is that we're seeing that David is now using Saul's sin as a justification for his own sin. He's pretty much saying that, well... Saul is going to push me out of the territory anyway. Uh, I, I might as well just concede this, and I'm going to do as best I can to take, this, take myself out of the situation and use this as to my advantage somehow. It didn't, however, seem to occur to him that God was a better place of refuge than going into the land of Ziklag. And it's not by accident, I think, that the narrator tells us in verse 6, I think this is a very interesting aside here, I want to point this out briefly, is that it says in verse 6, Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. So this story of David going to Gath to escape from Saul into enemy territory, and then, and then now being given Ziklag, is now going to be forever attached to the royal family. It's going to be forever attached to the throne of Israel, so long as they are in Ziklag and using that as a place where they're residing. Interesting, right? There's long-term consequences. This is going to be part of their history from that point forward. But sadly, I think there's another thing here that David's doing to attempt his justification in, in, fl- in fleeing to Gath. Let's turn to our third point this morning. He's going to look at, we're going to look at David's plundering in verses 8 through 12. We see in verse 7 here, that David is in this country of Ziklag for a year and four months. And then what we see in verses 8 through 14 is how he's conducting himself during this time. How he's living in the course of those 16 months in that area. So he leads this series of military campaigns, we're told. And he's doing this all in the surrounding areas, right in the south of, of the Philistine territory. And we see that he's besieging these people groups called the Gesherites, 
the Gerzites and the Amalekites. Now, you've heard of the Amalekites before, right? They were the ones that Saul was told to annihilate, and Saul disobeyed that order. And now, it appears that David, you could make the case, or we could try to make the case, that David just picking up where Saul had left off, that he's going to go back after the enemies of God and take them out. And he's not only just attacking those enemies, the Amalekites, but he's also, he's also adding to that the, the, the uh, Gerzites, who were only mentioned in this passage, not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, so there's, there's not really much we know about them, but also the Geshurites. But it could be that, as I was reading through the commentaries this week, is that it, it could be that these people groups were all part of the Canaanite uh, people group that had in, uh, inhabited the land from of old, as it says here, and that's the reason why maybe the narrator is telling us that. If you look back to Genesis chapter 12... They all came out of the, the lineage of, of Noah's three sons. And so if they were part of this Canaanite clan, then it could be that they were also part of the Canaanite ban that God had placed and instructed Israel to go and to devote to destruction in Exodus chapter 23 and Deuteronomy chapter 7. So again, if we use that, then it looks as though David is just attempting to execute God's commands, right? But I think what's striking here is that we, we see no evidence of any revelation from God to David telling him to go and pursue these people groups, to go and make these raids. And, and not only that, but he's, he's plundering the land. He's not destroying everything, leaving everything decimated, but he's keeping the livestock and the garments and their possessions, and he's bringing them back to Gath. So what, what I think is really happening here the way we should look at this is the fact that David is really just acting as a mercenary. He's actually acting, in a sense, as a Philistine himself. That Achish is expecting David to go on these raids. I mean, that's what the Philistines were known for. They were, they were marauders. They were known to make these raids, these series of uh, uh, raid campaigns. And that's why Achish is always asking him, where have you made your raid today? Where have you made your raid today, David? And so it was David's duty as a mercenary that he would carry out this Philistine custom. So we could make the case you could, that David is just thinking in his, in, his, in his mind, he's saying, well, if I have to go on these, these raiding campaigns in order to keep face, then I might as well attack Israel's enemies and do something good. So by doing that, we see that he's, he hasn't completely capitulated to the Philistine, uh, to, to being like a Philistine, that he's still identifying as an Israelite here. And he's using his deception here to think to make Achish think that he's raiding Israel rather than he's rather than raiding Israel's enemies here, and that's and that's the reason why as he's bringing his spoils to Achish, he's telling him that he went out against the Negeb of the Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeramalites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. So if you look at those two those two lists of people groups, they're they're very different in, ver, in verses eight and ten. So he's telling, he's, he's lying to the king here. And when you see the word Negev there, in some translations it's Negev with a V on the end rather than the B on the end. It refers to a southerly location of a particular territory or people group here. So David's telling him that he's raiding this, these southern territories of these people groups of Judah, Jeromelites, and the, and the Kenites. So he's doing all this, and as we're finding, if you look at verse 11 here, is that he's, he's trying to keep up these appearances with the king. And that's the reason why he's leaving no survivors. It's not because he's really trying to uh, do God's will, but it's the fact that he's trying to keep Achish placated. 
And so by doing this, what we're seeing is that he is geographically crossing over the border into Philistia, right? Into Gath. And at the same time, he's in a sense, he's crossing over into a lifestyle of deception. And actually, maybe we could even say into murder, unjust murder of these, of these people groups, right? Because God hasn't commanded him to, to take these people out. And I think David believes that he's doing what's right here. He's using deception in a way to accomplish what he thought was the greater good here. But evidently, as we're seeing here, he's actually not only deceiving Achish and, and the Philistines, but he's d- deceiving himself. A couple of weeks ago, we asked the question, do the ends justify the means? Is, is, let me ask it in a more pointed, more personal question. Is there something you know you shouldn't be doing, a lifestyle that you're, you're living, that you've rationalized to yourself or to other people, thinking that it's, it's, I'm doing this for the greater good? There's a, there's a good reason why I'm, I'm living this way. Or I'm, I'm making these decisions. Maybe what you're doing is you're, you're, instead of repenting of sin that you know you should be repenting of, you're, you're confessing your sin, quote-unquote confessing your sin to somebody else, but you're doing it in a way, you're, you're, you're kind of confessing in a way that, that really is looking for sympathy from the other person or looking for some kind of approval for, for what you're doing. Maybe even the person that you're, you're choosing to confess to is someone you know will just make light of the sin anyway and will just give you the justification for your sin or the approval that you're secretly looking for. Or let me ask it another way. Rather than doing something that you should be doing, maybe, maybe God is directing you to, to, to do something, to make a decision in your life, to, um, to move in a certain direction. You know, and instead of obeying God's voice and going this direction, you're going in a different direction, but you're using religious alternatives. So you're deceiving yourself into thinking, I'm doing something really good and godly, but really what you're doing, you're doing that, you're substituting that for actually listening to and obeying the voice of God. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? Oftentimes we concern ourselves with external forces of deception, right? These things are being deceptive, or these people are being deceptive. This fake news is coming at me, and, that's, and that's, that's what's making me make these decisions. So it's really that person's fault, or those people's fault, rather than looking inwardly and saying, I'm deceiving myself, I have sinned in my heart. That's, that's taking on, taking root, and then I'm living in, in those passions, so what we're going to see is that by doing that, and that's what David's doing here, it's going to lead us, it's leading him into a very serious dilemma. It's going to all come to a head here as we look lastly at David's predicament as we look at the first two verses here of chapter 28. At this point, David has successfully gained the admiration, the trust of Achish, the king here. And Achish is, is so convinced that David's a traitor that in that he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. That's, that's, those are the terminology that he uses. Which, by the way, is interesting because it's the same word, stench there, to a people um, being a stench to your enemy, is the same one that's used in chapter 13 when we look back at, at Jonathan after he had defeated the, the, uh, the garrison of the Philistines. He's paraded by Saul, or Saul may, may even be taking it taking it uh, on the credit on for himself and says, And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines 
and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. So now what happens is we see that as a result of, maybe even you could say as a reward for his loyalty, Achish is now directing David to come with him, to join with him in battle against none other than Israel. But I think what's, what's really going on here too is that I think more than just the directive that he's giving David is not just born out of the fact that he has admiration or he um, respects David, but I think this is another way in which Achish can, can damage his, his reputation in Israel. This is a place where Achish, by parading David in as his personal bodyguard against Israel, is thereby ensuring that David is... His reputation is permanently damaged. There, there's no going back. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine the effect that it would have on Israel if you're seeing David now coming out against you in battle along with the Philistines? How could he ever be trusted again? How could someone like that, a traitor, ever become the king of Israel? And then David answers intentionally, I think, ambiguously. He says, very well, you'll know what your servant can do. He's given some bravado here, right? He's... he's He's, he's placating here Achish, but I think he's trying to also hold on to the fact that he's not committing himself completely to the Philistine cause here. And when we see him, after we hear those words, we see that Achish then plans to make him his bodyguard for life. And that's where the narration ends. That's where we're left. It's kind of a cliffhanger because now what we'll see next week is it's the, the, the focus is going to shift away from, away from David and now to Saul, who's now, as you see, Saul's going to go after some medians, mediums here and try, to, and try to find out what he should be doing. So what we see happening here is it's, 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 it's crazy. He, Achish seems to have the upper hand here. He seems to be having trumped God's plan to make David the anointed king of Israel because he's going to now make him his bodyguard for life. But before we, we start thinking about what's going to happen, what's, what's, what happens next, how is David going to get out of the situation, is he going to get out of the situation, I think it's important that we should ask the question after reviewing all this story this morning is, how did David get there? How did he get himself into this mess? I think if we go back all the way to verse 1, chapter 27, I think we'll find what's really happening here. David's talking to himself and he says, There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. There's nothing better, he says. No better option. No other option. On the surface, it might seem like it's, it's pretty wise that... He, he, he shouldn't be trusting Saul, that's true. Saul has proven to be a liar. And how could he trust him not to come after him? But this one decision that David makes is now really going to change the course of his life and the lives of those under his care for the next 16 months at least. He's, he's abandoned his hope in God. He's, he's abandoned his trust in God. And he, he's doing it all in favor for, of his own cleverness. He's decided on what... He thinks is the easy way out, the alternative. This is the, this is the best way. This is the only clear way that I have out of the situation. But what we're going to see in the next coming chapters as we conclude this first Samuel and move into second Samuel soon is that it's not going to go all according to his plans. It's, it's going to be a lot harder. It's going to be more difficult than he had ever imagined. He's taken it upon himself that he's going to try to ensure his own safety, his own security. He's going to use human, human means to do that. 
And he's, he's going to not only trust, no longer trust God in his promises to bring him to Israel's throne. And, and this has led to a false sense of security, a life now, we see a life of deceit. And ultimately we can see some consequences where he's going to be at a place where he's left hopeless. I think we can all sympathize with David. I think, again, we, we can all understand where he's, where he's coming from and why he's making the decisions he's making. But I think we should all remember as we're looking to Scripture, we're not looking to Scripture to find someone that we can commiserate with. We're not looking to Scripture to find someone that we can sympathize with. We go to Scripture to find the God of the Bible who is perfect, who's holy, who is just and righteous, and he's the one who sympathizes with us. And we're the sinners. And it's not that he sympathizes with us just on a theoretical basis, but experientially as well. That we remember, as we look to the God-man, Jesus Christ, he himself came to earth. He arrayed himself not in splendor, but he arrayed himself in human weakness. He was tempted in the way, every way that we were tempted. He experienced the discomfort. He experienced grief and abandonment and betrayal and even violence, not as a consequence to his own sinful actions, because he was not sinful, but from sinful people, a world of sinners who he came to save. And having faced all of that, it all came to the climax of the cross, right? When we look at the cross, we see that what looked like evil had triumphed, God had accomplished his plan which is his plan, which is to destroy sin, to destroy Satan, to destroy death. God's purposes, we see, at the cross will not be thwarted, no matter how much we try, no matter how, even at our own incapabilities. Our fate, our, our security, our hope, even our joy rests in Christ's sufficient work on the cross, not anything that we've done or that we can do. We, we can depend upon him to guide us as to, to through tribulations until we will finally see him one day face to face. We can take refuge at, in him during the emotional, psychological, spiritual lows that we experience in our life. Because we can remember that even though we are not faithful, we are faithless, he remains faithful to his promises. The question is for all of us this morning is do you trust him? Do you trust Jesus? In the previous chapters, we've seen examples of how David has been a sort of type of Christ. He has been a, a foreshadowing of the greater anointed one, the Christ who was to come. But I think in this chapter, we're reminded that David is a person just like us. And that he was in every much in need of God's grace as we are today as well. And if we're reading the story right in this chapter, I think the story here is leading us to cry out for a hero because we don't see one here. We don't see a hero. So we cry out for one. But praise God, there is a hero. Amen? Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, He's the hero. Let me close with this, this psalm. Psalm 121. The psalmist reminds us of this. So let this be an encouragement to all of us this morning. So those who have placed their trust and their confidence in Jesus Christ. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He, will, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. 
The Lord shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Father, we thank you again for your, your word and what it teaches us about ourselves. It's, it's not easy to look at ourselves. We look through a mirror and see our sinfulness. We acknowledge our sinfulness. But it also reveals to us your delight in us. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done in our, on our behalf. And that when we take cover under the blood of Jesus Christ, we have no safer place that we can be in than in your presence. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is present in our hearts, who is the guarantee, the seal for the day in which you will come back for us, and that you will never leave or forsake us. And that as we live this life through this ups and downs, the trials and tribulations, we can know, we can be assured of the fact that you will never leave us, that you are always with us. And so we thank you for that promise and we pray that we would remember it and that we would rehearse that in our minds over and over every day and that the gospel would remind us of the beauty of Jesus Christ and bring us back to our senses. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.